are going to go ahead and begin. Uh, you should have grabbed an outline. The outline for this morning is fairly thick. So if you only grabbed a top sheet, there's much more to grab there. And uh, let's open our time. This morning we're going to be talking about cultivating a life of prayer and the discipline of being diligent and faithful in our prayer life. And it is appropriate that we begin in prayer. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another morning where we get to enjoy and experience and walk in your mercies and under your divine care. Thank you for these women who wake up early and sacrifice to, to be here and to participate. I know much is going on in people's lives in the spring and with spring break near. Uh, there's lots of things vying for everyone's attention and Lord, as we join together this morning, I pray that you would bless these women, bless this time, that you would be glorified as a result of it, that we would be better equipped children of God. Um, Lord, that, that even the intimacy and sweetness of the relationship that you have enabled through your son would be enhanced as we uh, seek to grow in our prayer life, in our communion with you through prayer, in our worship of you through prayer. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are going to dive right into our lesson this morning. Uh, we'll pick up some of the biblical literacy uh, components of what we've been working through in future weeks, but we are going to cover this morning a, a rather large topic, and we have a lot to get through, uh, but I hope that it'll be helpful and beneficial as we seek to grow in the discipline of prayer. And as we've been working through EQ this year, we know that there's a number of disciplines that need to be staples of the Christian life. And we've categorized those in three primary ways in the Christians care for their heart, their diligence in their home, and their faithfulness in ministry, or care for the heart, care for the home, care for ministry, diligence in these things. And as we think about prayer, prayer really needs to be a staple of all three. Our faithfulness and our care for our heart will be lacking tremendously if we neglect diligence in prayer. And same for our home, the outlet, the burden of our heart should be that we would be a blessing to our home, that we would be interacting with the Lord, petitioning the Lord, thanking the Lord, praising the Lord for the home life that he's given us. And obviously, as we seek to exert ourselves in faithfulness within the local body and, and in ministry to our Lord and service to our Lord, we need to recognize consistently that we are utterly dependent upon the Lord for the strength to do so in a way that's pleasing to him. And so prayer is, is really to be a staple of the Christian life, and prayer is also a significant revealer of how we're doing in many regards. There's some quotes for you in your outline there that I think are helpful just to cultivate a sober-mindedness about the significance and the reality of the importance of prayer. You see the first one there by Robert Murray McShane. He says this, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. The next one by Martin Lloyd-Jones is a little bit more wordy, but it gets at the same idea. He says, prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. And therefore, it is at the same time the ultimate test of one's true spiritual condition. There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life, ultimately, 
Therefore, one discovers the real condition of his spiritual life when he examines himself in private, when he is alone with God. And have we not all known what it is to find that somehow we have less to say to God when we are alone than when we are in the presence of others? This should not be so, but it often is. So that it is when we have left the realm of activities and outward dealings with other people and are alone with God that we really know where we stand in a spiritual sense. Well, why is this? Because it's easy to put on a show outwardly among one another. But what is your dependence upon the Lord? What is your excitement to fellowship with the Lord when others aren't around observing you? Do you love the Lord for the Lord? Do you depend upon the Lord because you recognize your desperate need for him? If we find great joy in talking with people about the greatness of God, but we neglect to talk with God about the greatness of God, that's a sign that there's actually hypocrisy in our lives that need to be rooted out. Prayer is crucially important to the Christian life. Oswald Chambers says this, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And yet sometimes it's easy to view prayer as some sort of preliminary that we we start with prayer, and that's kind of the introduction, the warm-up, and then we get to the real dealings of the Christian life. Yet the reality is it, it was a supernatural work to save us, to bring us into the church, and we must recognize as the church that we're participating in a supernatural work, and so we need God's assistance in all things. We need him desperately. So we're going to be looking at the prayer, the discipline of prayer, and how we might cultivate this life of prayer. And prayer is really a discipline. I doubt that any of us would say that we have arrived in our prayer life. And yet the reality is prayer is oftentimes a daunting topic. Prayer can and should be one of the most sweet and intimate practices within the Christian life, encouraging, emboldening, comforting practices for the Christian. And at the same time, it can be intimidating. Prayer can be confusing. Have you ever wondered, ah, man, I, I know I should be praying, but I'm not sure how to pray in this moment. What should I be praying for? Prayer can feel pointless. It can feel lonely. I've prayed so much and I don't perceive any change. I've been compressed under this trial. I'm even praying for the good things that, Lord, you say you want to do, like the salvation of a loved one or the change or repentance of sin in your own life. Why do I keep struggling with this? I've prayed and prayed and prayed that God would help me and I keep falling into the same rut. It can seem ineffective at times. God doesn't make things happen the way that I ask. And it's important for each of us to evaluate and consider how we actually view prayer. Is it something where we come before the Lord because we desire eagerly that he would bend his will to ours? Or is it something where it's an expression of humility and contrition before the Lord where we seek to fellowship and align ourselves with him? Let me ask you this. If you didn't pray for a day or for a week or for a month, would you, would you feel it? Would things be different about your life? Hopefully they would be different for each of us. And as important and crucial and significant and as much of a blessing as prayer is, the reality is, is that it's also often a neglected discipline. 
John Piper gets at this where he says, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. And yet that oftentimes is our excuse, right? We're just so busy right now. Got a lot to do. So we don't make time. And yet the reality is we make time for the things that are important to us. Now, Hopefully you all feel adequately beat up as we begin this morning. The reality is, again, that we must understand that if you are struggling with prayer, you're not alone in that struggle. It is a neglected discipline, and yet if you, hearing the things that we've addressed so far, go, oh man, this is going to be rough. It's rough for all of us. We all need to grow in this. We all need to increase in this. And so we can do that together. Let's talk a little bit about prayer and its purpose. We're going to be talking about prayer. It's important that we understand what we mean by prayer. And I think John Bunyan has a great summary statement of what prayer is. And I have that there also in your outline. We're on page two of your outline this morning under prayer and its purpose. And John Bunyan says this. He says, prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. That is both a concise statement and a jam-packed statement there. I love what he starts with in regards to the reality that Prayer is a sincere, sensible, and affectionate pouring out of the heart. And if we think of 1 Peter, the call in chapter 5 is actually to be sensible for the purpose or sober-minded for the purpose of prayer. And this is important when we think about the practice of prayer, that there's a sensibility to us. There's a a sober-mindedness. Prayer is not intended by God to be some sort of personal private prayer language or rambling or just a, an outburst of emotions only. There's to be a sensibleness in it, a, a sincerity from the heart, and yet it's not devoid of emotions. We see that exemplified beautifully in the book of Psalms where there's not a neglect or suppressing or denial of the reality of emotions and affections that come within a person's heart or soul in the midst of various circumstances and victories and triumphs and hardships and challenges. No, there is to be a a sensible, affectionate pouring out of your heart or soul to God. We can do this through Christ. We're dependent upon Christ because of his work in the gospel. We can actually approach the throne of grace. And we understand that there is the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 talks about how the Spirit intercedes on our behalf and aids us in our prayers and helps us when we don't know what to pray. The next line that the prayer is best personified or exemplified or practiced when you are praying in accordance with such things that God has promised. Things according to his word. Things that have good in mind, ultimate good that God puts forth and reveals from scripture, the kinds of things that we should desire and pray for. And it's also inclusive. It's not exclusive. The Christian's prayer life is not to be about themselves only always. If you consider the Lord's pattern of prayer, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, 
All of the pronouns are plural. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our trespasses. It's all, it's all plural. I think that's intentional. That there's prayers, yes, for realities that are going on in your life, but it's not confined to only that. We need to be people who pray for one another, who pray for our church and our local church and also the global church, God's people. We also need to understand the purpose of prayer. The ultimate purpose of prayer is this. It's the glory of God. The glory of God. John fourteen thirteen says this, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. When we talk about, in Jesus' name, amen, we are petitioning God that our prayers would be in accordance with Jesus' name, that they're in conjunction with the person of Jesus, that they're in, in accordance with who he is. And when we pray prayers that are in conjunction, that are connected to the person of Jesus, God loves to answer those prayers. That's why we close our prayers with that. It's not a, a fancy tagline to get what we want. It's actually meant to be an expression of association with Christ. And therefore, the content of our prayers need to match it, the sentiment of the closing of our prayer. And when that happens, the Father loves to answer those prayers and is glorified in that. He glorifies Christ in that. And so just as with all things in the Christian life, the aim is the glory of God, so it is with our prayer life. The, the aim of our prayer life is not to feel refreshed in the Lord primarily. It's not to have trials lifted in our lives primarily. It's not so that we could be good Christians primarily, doing the right Christian things. It's so that God is glorified. We want to see him exalted, and God is glorified through his people's humble faithful dependence upon him. So with these things in mind, let's look at a model of prayer. This isn't the complete picture of all that prayer is or should be or could be, but yet we're going to look at Colossians 1 and we're going to see Paul's model of prayer and how he prays for the believers in Colossae. And the, the roadmap for this morning is we're going to begin with this model of prayer that we see in Paul broken down into two categories, his thanksgiving and his petitions. Paul's thanksgiving and his petitions. And then after we work through this model of prayer, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about hindrances to a life of prayer. What are some snares that we may fall into? What are some obstacles that we may face in cultivating a life of prayer? And then conversely, what are some aids to a life of prayer? And then Lord willing, if we have time, we'll wrap up with a, a couple examples that we can look at and some, some closing thoughts. So first, a model of prayer. Turn to Colossians 1 if you're not already there. We're going to start by looking at verses 3 through 8, and we're going to see Paul's thanksgiving. And we're just going to make some observations as we work through here. In Colossians 1, Paul is praying regarding the believers in Colossae. And, and he's going to thank God for see, things that he, that he sees in them, that he's heard about them, that he's had reported back to him regarding these things. And it's important to understand that everything that is worthy of praise or thanksgiving 
Everything that is good, it only comes from God. And so God is the one Paul gives thanks to. And if anything good comes from you, it's because of God. He has put it there. If anything good comes from me, it's the same. This should have a humbling effect on us. It's helpful. It's good. It's appropriate. And so let's look at Paul's thanksgiving. Starting in verse 3 of Colossians 1, Paul says this. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the spirit. So Paul's thanksgiving. Well, he starts giving thanks to God for the believers in Colossae in regards to their faith in Jesus. That's your first blank in your outline under Paul's thanksgiving. Faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. This is on page two. Under a model of prayer, Paul's thanksgiving. First observation is Paul gives thanks for their faith in Jesus. This is in the first half of verse four. We see it right there. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus... This is really the most exciting report that Paul could receive. They have faith in Christ. Ever since the moment he heard of their faith in Christ, he gives thanks to God for that. And that's appropriate. What else, what else would you want more than to hear a report of others' genuine conversion? Their salvation. Ever since the mode, uh, he heard of it, he gives thanks. Paul had never met these believers personally. He hasn't visited, visited them to this point, but the report has come to him of their trusting confidence in Christ. This is where the gospel starts, with faith in Jesus and the believers in Colossae. They had faith, and this faith was in Christ. And in order to have the gospel in your life, you have to have faith, and you have to have the correct object of your faith, right? It's not just faith alone. I have faith in Frank. Well, the, who cares? You have to have the right object of your faith. And they do. It's Christ Jesus, the Messiah Jesus. It has to be the right person, and it has to be the right practice. And they have faith in Christ, and we see this expressed. And this is actually a, a really encouraging starting point that catapults Paul into the rest of his prayer. It's important to realize if you're praying for a fellow believer, there is always something to give thanks for. That's helpful to remember. There's just always something to give thanks for. In those hardest relationships in the body of Christ where you struggle in your heart to live peaceably alongside other believers, listen, start with this. Lord, the same grace that I desperately needed, you have lavished on them. You have saved them. They are a co-heir. I get to spend eternity with this person because they have faith in Christ. They're, they're eternal Destiny has been transformed because of your work in their life. Thank you for that. Thank you for the faith that they have in Christ. Next, Paul flows 
in the same vein with number two, giving thanks for their love for the saints. Their love for the saints. That's your next blank in your outline. And Paul flows right into that in verse four. Since we heard of your faith in Christ and the love which you have for all the saints. This is the next manifestation of the gospel in their lives. There are results of genuine faith. Faith in Jesus produces specific things. The gospel takes effect. It takes root in someone's heart by the gift of faith from God. But one of the first things that faith in Jesus produces is love for the saints, love for others. We know this from John 13, 34 and 35, where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. There's actually a, a, a witness aspect, a testimony aspect to this love for one another. Jesus goes on to say, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. One of the greatest ways you can guard yourself from sin is by cultivating this kind of love for others that gives thanks for this and recognizes this. Just think about it for a moment. If you have a heart that is giving thanks for others and is loving others and pursuing the good of others, it guards yourself against things like selfishness and greed, covetousness, anger, divisiveness, bitterness, discontentment. All of these things can be set aside by cultivating a diligent practice of love for others above yourself. And notice how Paul thanks God for their love for all the saints. There weren't some believers they loved and others they didn't. There wasn't discrimination in their love. There wasn't pockets within their local church where they expressed their love. They they loved all the saints. And just in this observation, there's a gentle rebuke for each of us to make sure that we're not separating our love out within the within the body this doesn't mean the nature of our friendships needs to always look the same with every member in the body of christ that's not what's being expressed here but the willingness to give of ourselves for each other's good there needs to be an indiscriminate expression of this love towards all the saints that we possess as well and so paul starts with thanking god for their faith in christ jesus thanking God for their love for the saints. And then next in verse five, we see their hope in heaven. Their hope in heaven. Verse five, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And I know what you're thinking right now. My outline is super creative, isn't it? (laughs) I don't know, how does he come up with this stuff? (laughs) It's right there. The Lord came up with it for us. Believers have a special hope. And, and Paul thanks God for this hope that the believers have in heaven. A hope that is worthy of thanking God for is a hope that's grounded in eternity. There's a hope laid up for believers or reserved or in store in heaven. A Christian can endure hardship and endure persecutions and perseverance through trial and press on in tragedy, all because Christians have a hope in something outside of themselves or their immediate circumstances. It's a hope in something beyond this world alone. We have a hope in the work of Christ, which has given to us a hope in eternity in heaven. And so whatever trials and struggles and hardships that we face in this life, they're but momentary light affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. 
And Moses is a great example of looking beyond this world to eternity as he navigated this world. Look at Hebrews 11 just for a moment. You can keep your hand in Colossians 1. We'll be coming back, but turn over to Hebrews 11. I want you to see this. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 24 The author says this, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. He was looking beyond this life. He was looking to eternity. And so in this life, he gladly, willingly, voluntarily gave up all of the prestige and riches and pleasures that this world could offer and counted them to be cast aside in order to take on the reproach of Christ through humble obedience and association with God's people because he was looking past the immediate circumstances of this life to the reward that awaits him. What a great example and help for us to consider as we think about navigating this life and the various circumstances to, to thank God for the hope in heaven because it has significant implications on how we navigate the various circumstances of this life. And so yes, choosing obedience, even if it comes with difficulty, your whole life, it's worth it. It's always worth it to submit and to obey God. Look beyond this life. Look to the reward. Thank God for this. Thank God for the hope of heaven that he gives to the believer. And press forward. Well, next, number four, is growth in fruit. Growth in fruit. We see that in verse six. Paul says, which has come to you just as in all the world. He's talking about the gospel. So you heard the word of truth at the end of verse five, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. So Paul thanks God for their growth in fruit. Here we see the gospel produces fruit, fruit both in personal transformation of individuals and in corporate growth of the church. It's come to you, it's bearing fruit, and it's going out beyond you and bearing fruit as well. More disciples, growing more disciples. And we see that the gospel not only saves individuals, but it changes their life and it produces fruit. Paul here is looking for evidences of the gospel playing itself out in the life of the Colossians, and he can actually see it even from a distance. It's being reported and testified to, and this great holiness, this fruit of that which is pleasing to God. And then lastly, as we look at Paul's thanksgiving, we have seen their faith in Jesus, their love for the saints, their hope in heaven, their growth in fruit. And then the last one is particularly compelling because it's it's outside of maybe how we would naturally be prone to think in regards to these things. And it's this, it's authentication from leaders. Authentication 
from leaders. And we see this expressed in verse 7 and 8. And we know that salvation is only by grace. And it's ultimately only a work of God. Yet God uses humans as channels of that grace. And I want you to see what Paul says in verse 7. This gospel of grace and truth that they understood at the end of verse 6. He says, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Epaphras was most likely part of the establishment of the church in Colossae, most likely a pastor in the church in Colossae. He says, our fellow slave or bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. So Epaphras has been ministering to these saints on behalf of Paul in a leadership role. And in verse eight, he says, and he also informed us of your love in the spirit. And so this spiritual leader in the life of the Colossians, believers, has ministered to them, has rubbed shoulders with them, and has reported back to Paul in verse 8. He informed us of your love in the Spirit. Epaphras brought the good news of the gospel to the Colossians. They learned it from him. He was their mentor in the faith. He was Paul's representative and fellow slave of Christ. He was a faithful leader, and he testified of the Colossians' love in the Spirit. What we see there is that the Colossian leader, Epaphras, he authenticated or he testified to or he shared with Paul the reality of their faith. He assessed it as true or genuine. And this is definitely something the gospel produces and something to give thanks to God for. In order to have, however, an authentication or a testifying from leaders of the genuineness of your faith, of your love in the Spirit, what needs to be necessary? Spiritual leaders in your life. There's an assumption here, uh, an implicit assumption, where there's just not a category for rogue Christians who do their own thing, who walk their own way, who live individually apart from the church. God has a design for his people, and it's that everyone is under Authority, we are all under authority. Delegated human authority. We have various authorities in our life. It may come in the context of work. It may come in the context of government. It must come in the context of the local church. Everyone is under flawed, God, providentially placed human authority. As an elder. I'm under authority. Whose authority am I under? What's that? I, miss, I missed it. The other elders. Exactly. I'm a sheep first. Pope, being an elder, elder doesn't remove me from authority, from being under authority. I'm still under the authority of my other elders, my elders. And so consider this in your participation in the body of Christ. Consider this in your participation at Gilbert Bible Church. Do you have people in your life who can testify to these things in you? Have you opened the door of your life to allow others to speak into your life in this way? Or have you built in contingencies? Have you kept the church at an arm's length? I'm going to get close enough to appease my conscience that, yeah, I'm part of a church, but I'm going to stay distant enough to where people don't actually have access to the intimate details of my life. 
Or maybe we've set up additional contingencies to allowing others to speak into our life or to be able to give testimony to our life. Someone needs to treat me the right way or pursue me the right way. They need to confront me the right way. And that's when I'll allow people close to me. Is there a tendency to place unbiblical contingencies on your relationships before you're willing to do what God calls you to do? I'm just not comfortable opening up in fellowship groups. Ultimately, it's not about how we feel or our comfort level. And yet I recognize that this kind of transparency, this this kind of, of connection to the local church, it can be... It can be difficult, especially where there's been previous hurt by people in the past. It can be extremely difficult where you felt betrayed. I opened up once before and then they came after me in a really unloving way. That happens. It's tragic. It's not right. And yet our previous circumstances don't justify today's disobedience. We're called to be connected to the local church. We trust God, not because everything turns out easy, but because we know that God's providence is in it. His word is clear. His design is perfect, and he uses it to grow us, to conform us more into Christ's image. And this ultimately comes down to faith in God. It's a faith issue. God won't fail us in his design. There's a book that when our kids were younger, we liked to read called Frog on a Log. And it goes through all these rhymes of different animals and talks through things that they do. And it says parrots. Okay, so they attempted to rhyme. Okay, I think maybe you have to read it with an accent. But parrots sit on carrots. Lions sit on irons. And then the frog interrupts and says, that doesn't sound very comfortable. And this frog and cat that are going back and forth are talking. And the frog says, that doesn't sound very comfortable for a lion to sit on an iron. And the cat says, it's not about being comfortable. It's about doing the right thing. And we just cracked up as a family that, you know, they they make up all these things that animals do that make no sense. But the principle, it's not about being comfortable. It's about doing the right thing. We just loved that. We thought that was the best thing ever because it's true. It's not, the Christian life is not about being comfortable. It's about doing the right thing. What's the right thing? Being in close proximity with one another. And and think about this. Think about the joy that you would have being in close proximity with one another, of being able to testify and give account of others' faith, of the genuineness of others, to encourage people in that way. So thinking about this authentication from leaders, this testimony of leaders to the sincerity of faith, that's definitely something to thank God for. And in light of this, could someone pray this prayer of thanksgiving to God regarding you? Are there people in your life that could testify to these types of things in your life? One of the primary cures as we think about this section on Paul's thanksgiving, one of the primary cures for for anxiety is thanksgiving. And so praying often and giving thanks is such a helpful aid in our own godliness and our own growth in godliness. Do we think about these things? Do we praise God for these things? 
There's the sanctifying effect of cultivating a life of prayer that is inclusive of thanksgiving in that it actually causes us to gain a right perspective of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so the things that we have going on in our life that, that well up anxiety in our souls Paul tells us in chapter 4 of Philippians to present your request to God. Don't be anxious, but rather present your request with thanksgiving. And what's the, what's the consequence there? What's the outcome? God's peace that transcends understanding will actually guard your heart and your mind. As a believer, we always have many things for which to give thanks to God for. Well, next we see Paul's petitions. Paul's petitions, and those are in verses 9 through 14 of Colossians. And so start reading with me again in verse 9. Paul says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What a wonderful expression of petitions coming to the Lord there. If you ever want to know, how can I be praying for Josh? How can I be praying for Tom and Tyler? Just pray that. (laughs) What a a wonderful gift to be prayed for that way in regards to those things. Well, let's break it down a little bit here. Four, Four categories of petitions that we see in this section. And first Paul prays, he petitions the Lord in regards to their thinking. Their thinking. Look at verse 9. Paul says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, that is their faith in Christ, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul prays that they would be filled. And this word for filled, it's a a word that at its root level was used to describe a a sail on a sailboat being inflated or, or gusted with wind that it just filled it up and catapults that boat forward. It moves along like wind in a, in a sail on a sailboat. So to be filled with this thing is, is to be, to be brought full of these things in a way that catapults you forward. And then he says, what? That they would be filled with knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so we see knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And these are all thinking categories. We need to know God's truth. We need to be filled with the knowledge of his will. And then we need to have wisdom from God to understand how to live appropriately in light of that how to apply God's word. And we need to have an understanding. What, what does this look like fleshed out in life's various circumstances and activities? This is really a, a fight what you feel with what you know mentality to think properly so that you can control and handle how you feel and how you press forward in, in life. 
that you would be grounded and rooted on what is true and have the sensibility, the sober-mindedness to, to know how to live in light of that truth in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And so Paul first prays for their thinking, but he doesn't stop there. This thinking that's rooted on a, a strong biblical understanding and wisdom and insight flows into something for a purpose. And he says that in verse 10, so that, so I pray that you'll be filled with understanding wisdom and or, uh, knowledge, wisdom and understanding so that, what? you will know so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. And so this right thinking that Paul prays for leads to a prayer also for the right decisions, that they'll please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. Paul prays that they would make the right decision and the best decision in every way, every time. The decision that will bring about the most glory to God and the most spiritual good in every choice. And what we find in this is that sometimes the circumstances that we find ourselves in in life, it's not so much about the indecision, end decision, the final decision that we're making, but how we make that decision, how we get there. That we would walk in a manner to, to please him, to bear fruit in every good work. And these are exclusive statements. These are big prayers. We shouldn't shy away from that. Think about waking up each morning and praying this prayer for yourself. Praying this prayer for your spouse. Praying this prayer for your believing children. Praying this prayer for one another in the church. Lord, today... Every decision, every moment where I have to choose which path I'm going to go down, help me to go down a path. Help me to walk consistently with your work in me through the gospel. That it would be pleasing to you, that it would be fruitful in glorifying you. Help me, do the, help me to do that each time today. That, that's how this prayer is set up. Uh, think about praying that for one another when somebody says, hey, I have this appointment coming up. I have this decision to make. I've got this meeting ahead of me. To pray this way, as opposed to, Lord, help that to, be, to go well. No, Lord, help this person to make the right decision to honor you, to bear fruit that would glorify you in every way, in every moment. Depend upon the Lord that way. Think about the dependence that this recognizes. Every decision, every moment, we're in need of God's divine assistance. We need to understand this. We need to recognize this. Walk in light of this. And this isn't living in a way that you're good enough or make the cut. This doesn't mean that your Christian walk is undone when this prayer isn't answered and you don't walk perfectly every moment. That's not going to happen for any of us, but there should be a disposition of our heart where we recognize God's need and we're desiring that. We're pressing on towards that. And yet the reality is, is that this isn't for us to attain our salvation, to, to gain our foundation from God. This is us living in light of it. This is how the Christian, this is what we should aim at as Christians in light of what God has done, to walk in response to what he has done. Next, Paul prays for their steadfastness. 
Steadfastness. What does it mean to be steadfast? It means to remain under difficult circumstances. Paul says in verse 11 that his petition is that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. And steadfastness is remaining under difficult circumstances and impatience is emotional quietness in the face of unfavorable circumstances. This is to stay with it, to not give up, to be steadfast, to endure. And listen, you don't need steadfastness and patience or endurance if things are easy. There, there's a implication here behind this prayer. You only pray this prayer if the expectation is that things are going to be hard. This life is hard. Trials come. And we need to remain steadfast. We need to remain under difficult circumstances at times. The Lord does this in his good providence. And so we're to be patient. There's to be an emotional quietness in the face of unfavorable circumstances. This is what it means to be sensible. God calls women specifically to be sensible. He calls men specifically to be sensible. We're to be sober-minded, steady in our thinking, not prone to extremes. To be patient, to think rightly, to endure to not give up, to stay with it. And then he prays for their, lastly, their worldview. And in the end of verse 11, he says joyously. And then into verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And as Paul closes out his prayer, he reminds these believers and he prays in accordance with the reality that they're no longer citizens of this world. There's a, there's a different worldview that believers are to possess where you recognize that you're a citizen of heaven. You've been transferred from the, from the kingdom of this world and you've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. This world isn't it. As hard and as bad and as difficult as life may get on this earth, this isn't it. We've been rescued from the power of this world, from the domain of darkness within this world. We are sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. We've experienced redemption and forgiveness of sin. This comes back to that hope in heaven that the believers possess. That is a tremendous gift. Well, this is a pattern of prayer. Hopefully this is helpful. If you're thinking about bolstering your prayer life and going, where do I start? I... I want to grow in prayer, but I sit down and my mind wanders and it drifts or I fall asleep or I get distracted. I think about things going on in my day. I don't even know how to pray for people. Here's, here's that, that's a helpful pattern. Just take these points and just pick the people closest in your life. Pray for yourself in regards to this and start here. Hopefully that's a help for you. Now, next I want to transition to some hindrances to a life of dependent prayer. 
And we're going to pick up the pace a little bit here, but I want to talk a little bit about these hindrances to a, a life of dependent prayer. First and foremost, a hindrance is this, a lack of belief, a lack of belief. So we should be together on page three, and it's your first bullet point, lack of belief or lack of faith. Is everybody with me on the outline? Did I, have I lost anybody yet? All right, doing good early. I like it. A hindrance to a life of prayer is a lack of faith or a lack of belief. What are some things that we must believe that we might be tempted to not believe? Well, first, we must believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So just recognize and believe, trust God that he rewards those who diligently seek him. If we don't believe that, yes, it's going to be a hindrance to our prayer life. If we don't believe God cares, if we don't believe God draws near, if we don't believe he rewards or blesses those who come to him, it's going to be a hindrance to our prayer life. So we need to cultivate a, a right faith, a right belief that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Next, we must believe that God is there and interested in your prayers. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If we truly believe that the Lord's nearness to us increases as we humbly, contritely come to him in prayer, I think we would all pray more. God draws near to those who draw near to him. We must believe this. We must also understand that his answer may not be what, when, or how you expect it, but that his ways are best. Our prayer life would be greatly enhanced or is greatly enhanced when we consistently hold to and believe that God's ways are best and that while we come before him with our petitions and requests, we can trust him with the outcome. Psalm 1830 says, as for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried, that's tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Everything God does every single time is always blameless. There's never a time where he doesn't answer prayer and he should have. There's never a time where you ask him to do something, he doesn't, and we can go, see God, if you, if you had done things my way, it would have turned out better. And yet, in practice, we probably won't overtly state that, but in heart, sentiment, contentment, we might imply that. God's ways are always best. Next, what's another hindrance is a lack of persistence. We're used to immediate responses in day-to-day -day life. There was an instance where I was counseling a young man who was in a dating relationship and had given him some fairly weighty, significant things to consider and told him to pray about it. I told him at lunch one day, the next day he called me and said, listen, I've, I've prayed a ton about this and I've concluded blah, 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 blah. I thought, wow, you prayed a bunch since lunch yesterday. I think if you had only prayed the whole time is probably not enough in light of the things that we're talking about right now. But we want that. We're impatient. We want that immediate response. What do I do next? What's going to change? What's going to be different? How am I going to get what I want? Yeah, there's actually a, a, a help 
to God's tarrying in answering prayers immediately. Not receiving immediate responses to prayers actually gives us long-term needs to be prayerful over things, to come before him, to draw before him, to, to draw ourselves to him, to come before him in regular communion through our needs over which we pray continually. This is good for us. It's good for us to recognize our continual dependency upon him. Also, there's times where God doesn't give us what we ask because we ask with impure motives. We want to spend it on ourselves. We want what we want, right? It's the delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Oh, awesome. Okay, uh, I'm going to delight myself in God so that I can get a million dollars and life will be so much easier. Well, uh, no, that actually delighting yourself in the Lord aligns your will with the Lord's. And so the things that you actually desire when you're delighting in the Lord are things in accordance with the Lord. And so he gives what you want. Well, same with prayer. Align yourself with what God wants for you and pray those things. That's when you can have confidence. You're not praying and petitioning God to to value the things that you value the way you value them. God, I really value comfort. Would you give me a comfortable life? (laughs) No, Lord, you really value my sanctification. Would you bring it about regardless of the cost? And then lack of preparedness. Lack of preparedness. We need to be diligent in preparing ourselves for prayer. We need to plan accordingly. Uh, many of you may be going on spring break this next week. John Piper says this in Desiring God. He says, unless I'm badly mistaken, one of the main reasons so many of God's children don't have a significant life of prayer is not so much that we don't want to, but that we don't plan to. If you want to take a four-week vacation, you don't just get up one summer morning and say, hey, let's go today. You won't have anything ready. You won't know where to go. Nothing has been planned. But that's how many of us treat prayer. We get up day after day and realize that significant times of prayer should be a part of our life, but nothing's ever ready. We don't know where to go. We don't have a plan. There's no time, no place, no procedure. And we all know that the opposite of planning is not a wonderful flow of deep, spontaneous experiences in prayer. The opposite of planning is the rut. If you don't plan a vacation, you'll probably stay home and watch TV. The natural unplanned flow of spiritual life sinks, excuse me, to the lowest ebb of vitality. There is a race to be run and a fight to be fought. If you want renewal in your life of prayer, you must plan to see it. So I never know what to pray and my prayer life's lacking. Well, sit down one evening and say, okay, what's my plan? When am I going to pray? When am I going to cultivate intentional prayer time with the Lord? What am I going to pray? Years ago when I was in my first semester of seminary, I had a a class that was a class on prayer. And the primary assignment for the class was to spend an hour of prayer a day. That was for the semester. Had to pray an hour a day. And I thought, wow, okay, that's, that's that's a big step up from what I had been praying. And... So I woke up the first morning and I got, you know, in, in my office and started praying and uh, I thought this isn't so bad and prayed a bunch. And then I looked at the clock and I was terrified to see that seven whole minutes had gone by. <laughs> I thought, 
I got 53 more minutes to go. What am I going to pray for? I'm like, I need to think this through. I need to think this through a little bit more specifically. And so I started a practice. Okay, I'm going to pray uh, through two passages pertaining to the gospel a week. And then I'm going to pray through 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 every week on the elder qualifications and pray through each of those qualifications that God would grow me in regards to those. And then I'm going to pray through two psalms or portions of two psalms a week. And then on Sundays, I would pray through whatever passage the passage was that we would be teaching on and um, pray for all of the different uh, primary servants or leaders participating in the service. And that just became my normal routine. And every couple months I would shift around the gospel passages, but those other things remained a staple. And then I started incorporating uh, also the Valley of Vision book, which is a book of Puritan prayers and praying one of those. And then I broke down on an Excel sheet, different categories. So family, uh, close, very close friends, pray every day for them. Uh, people in my small group at the time had a rotation, praying for them twice a week. People that I led in ministry, praying for them twice a week. Other people in the body, praying for them once a week. People that I know, missionaries, praying for them once a week. People outside of the body, friends, acquaintances, uh, praying for them every other week. And then started a, a way on Evernote on how I took notes to keep prayer requests and so on. And I, And then all of a sudden I found... Man, an hour went by like that, and I'm having to spread things out because I can't pray for all the things that I want to pray for. I haven't maintained an hour of prayer a day every day since then. That semester was incredibly rich, though, and helpful for just making a plan. It forced me to make a plan on what what I thought would bless the Lord and, and be honoring to him in my prayer life. So make a plan. Make it a priority. Next, uh, aids to a life dependent on prayer. So this is conversely to the, to the threats. And obviously, if you do the opposite of those threats, it will aid you. But, but what are some specific aids to a life of prayer? Well, first of all, just a readiness. Pray at all times in the spirit, Ephesians 6 to 8, 18 says. Uh, there's a readiness, a, an eagerness. Right? Cultivating a life of prayer doesn't mean only having a five minute or 15 minute or 30 minute or 60 minute time in the morning of prayer, but letting prayer be a normal practice in your life. That when you find yourself welling up with anger as your children are disobeying for the umpteenth time in the day, or where you have expectations and your spouse isn't fulfilling those expectations and you find yourself growing in impatience or discontentment to in that moment shepherd your heart through petitioning the lord lord this is not honoring to you i want to please you help me to want to please you more than i want what i want right now (laughs) help me lord having a life that's dependent upon prayer thinking about others throughout the day and just praying for them as they come to mind making use of mundane moments there's a readiness. There's an, an eagerness. Oftentimes it seems we're more eager to talk about praying for others than actually praying for others, right? How, how often have you had a brother or sister in Christ say, oh, would you be praying for me? In reg- I, I have this thing coming up. Would you pray for me? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be praying for you. It's gone. <laughs> and then you find out a couple weeks, oh, thanks for praying for me. It went great. Oh, 
glad to hear that. I forgot to pray for you, but I'm glad it went great, right? That, I've made it a practice to where if somebody asks me to pray for them through text or in a moment or something like that, I'm writing it down. Have a note on your phone or something where you can write those things down as quickly as possible afterwards, or even better, pray in the moment. Pray for them in the moment. Take that time. Pray with them in the moment. That's a huge blessing. Next, devotion and alertness in prayer. You don't need to turn there. Colossians 4.2, however, says simply devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an, with an attitude of thanksgiving. Again, we see that disposition of thanksgiving. That's to be a staple of the believer in their prayer life. But there's to be a, a devotion and an alertness, a readiness in prayer. We're far too self-reliant. We need to recognize our desperate need for God. We need to be spiritually desperate as the psalmist is in Psalm 42, where he says, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. We need God's grace and power and strength every day to enable us and help us and come alongside of us as we already saw in Colossians 1.9. We need God's wisdom to walk worthily there just must be a, a, del a, a deliberate nature, a devotion and alertness in our prayer. And then next, there needs to be submissive and surrender. Submissive and surrender. That's your last blank on page four. We need to cultivate lives where prayers, our prayers are consistent with what we know about God and his will to align ourselves with him, with his truth. Not my will be done, but yours, Lord. Well, how do we know what God's will is? His word. We need to have prayers that seek to be obedient to what God says, that there's a yieldedness in us to him and to his spirit. We're not seeking to be selfish in our prayers, but humble in our prayer. God wants our pride crushed, and we need to allow him to do so through humble dependence upon him. And then there needs to be a, a predominant concern with things pertaining to a spiritual nature. And that's your next blank on page five, a spiritual concern. An aid to cultivating a life of prayer is to cultivate spiritual concern primarily, not exclusively. It's okay to pray for good physical outcomes if you're experiencing sickness and ailments or difficulties. We, we do that frequently. We pray for healing and that's good and that's appropriate. And yet we wouldn't want that to be devoid of spiritual concern. And in fact, I think we should have a greater emphasis, not an exclusive emphasis necessarily, but a greater consistent emphasis of spiritual concern. Things for spiritual growth and maturity, praying that others would stand complete as Paul labors and desires in Colossians, praying with the same kind of fervency and, and intensity that Paul demonstrates. That we wouldn't always just pray for relief from various trials, but praying, praying that we would grow in the midst of those trials. Lord, if it's your will to bring relief from this, would you please do that? And yet, Lord, in the midst of this, maximize your work in my life, in this person's life, as they go through this trial and hardship. As we think about these things, there can be a temptation to go, wow, there's a lot here that I need to be thinking about in my prayer life. You don't need to master these things to start. And if you don't have this attitude in your prayer today, 
don't succumb to the temptation that would say, wow, I really got to get my heart in the right place so that I don't mess up my prayers. So I'm going to do something other than pray. Go to the Lord. Pray that he would grow you in your affections for him expressed through prayer. Pray that he would grow you in your practice of prayer. Pray that he would aid you in these things. It's kind of like we talked about when we talked about faithfulness with the word of God, that if you wake up, right, we should have a heart that is humble and contrite before God and wants to hear from him so that we might be molded and shaped and conformed more into the likeness of Christ. And yet at times there's some who goes, well, that's not where my heart's at. I don't want to bring a dishonoring heart to God in his word. So I'm going to wait till my heart's in the right place. Then I'll get into the word. And we talked about the, the sweet consideration of a sincere intention like that and the ignorance of that, <laughs> right? That, that that's not how we should think. What would God be more pleased to use to bring our heart to the right place than faith that says, my heart's not in the right place. This is the last thing I want my, my, in my own heart right now, but I trust you, and so I submit, and I'm going to do it anyway, even though I don't feel like it. Lord, change, help, you know, I believe you, Lord, help my unbelief right now. Well, that's how it should be with prayer as well. We don't have to master all this to get there. Now, before we kind of wrap up our time, turn to uh, the page Praying Scripture Example. And if you have not made a, a practice of praying Scripture, I highly encourage you to do this. It's been one of the most significant uh, practices for my prayer life. One of the most significant encouragements is to, to practice and learn to pray through scripture. It started with picking those chapters each a day to pray through. And what I found was then I would get into my daily reading and I didn't stop praying. It, it, it just made my devotion time with the Lord so much more worshipful because I had, I had trained myself. I had learned to interact with the Lord as his word was dealing with me. Um, so what might that look like? Here's an example. If you're wondering, how do I what things should I think about? What would it look like to pray through scripture? Here's, here's a basic example. This is not the only way. This is just a, a resource to potentially be a help. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We know this passage says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who would not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So I put together a couple questions to help as a platform to think through a text like this to then know, okay, so how might I pray through scripture? Well, the first question is this, what is the promise or truth in the text? Do you guys see that on your outline? Are we all together? Perfect. What is the truth or promise? In, what is the promise or truth in this text? Well, we see right there, God is faithful. We also see that God will not allow believers to be tempted beyond what they are able we also see that God will provide a way of escape for believers from temptation. So those are the predominant truths that we see just kind of breaking down each phrase saying, what is this, what is this actually saying that we see in the text? Now, this next question is especially insightful and very important when we're praying through text. And this is probably one of the easier things to get tripped up on. And it's for whom is the promise or truth applicable. And oftentimes we want to claim God's promises 
as our own, and yet they weren't promises toward us. If you tell your one child that you will take them to ice cream if they complete their task, it's not an invitation for every other child to go complete that task and then get ice cream. That was a promise for that one child. It, 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 it may be applicable to your other children. It may not be. But what is clear in that one statement is for whom it is applicable, which is the child. And so you have to think through for whom is the promise or truth applicable. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, it's written to the Corinthian believers as New Testament Christians and is a truth that's intended for all believers. When you just think about, okay, who is, who's the author? To whom is he writing? It's the church in Corinth. What's going on around it? Is there something in the text that would make me think this is only for this church or broader? Well, when you take a look at Colossians, working through that. Hold on one second. Through that, it's clear that this is a truth that, yes, Paul is writing to the Corinthian believers, but it's true for all Christians. In contrast, a promise like Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you. Who is the you in Jeremiah? Israel, right? It's for Israel. And so these plans to prosper them and things like that, is that promise to Israel a promise also from Jeremiah 29 to New Testament believers? No. Are there, does that make that passage less applicable or valuable? Absolutely not. It is just as rich, just as valuable, just as applicable, but maybe not in the ways that we want, especially when we're going through hardship. God's going to prosper me. God's going to prosper me. No, God actually says this world is filled with many troubles and hardships to not store up treasures on this earth, but to store up treasures in heaven. So, you know, let's cling to those truths and let God do with those truths what he desires and leave the truth to Israel to Israel and marvel at God's faithfulness and go, wow, look at the way that he's faithful to his people in the Old Testament in the midst of their rebellion and how he's going to bring to pass his promises. Even though they're unfaithful, he's going to do that work in them and he will be faithful to all of his promises. That's the kind of God I get to serve. What has he promised me? How can I trust him? He's going to bring me to the end. He's going to be faithful in the midst of my lack of faithfulness. I can, I can trust to him. I can look to him. He's a loving father. Okay. And then the, the last question, how might this promise or truth inform my prayers? Well, you can reflect on the reality of God's faithfulness. You can pray that God would not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can endure. You can actually pray that with a bold, emphatic confidence. Why? Because he says he won't. <laughs> you can also pray that God would provide and that you would take the way of escape when tempted. You can pray that he would provide it with a great confidence because he says he will, and you can pray that you would take it and walk in obedience. So putting all that together, what might a prayer look like? Maybe in the moment of temptation, or this is more in the moment of temptation, uh, but you could pray it this way at the beginning of the day. God, I will be tempted today, and yet I know you are faithful and so would you please allow your faithfulness to abound in my life throughout this day? I know you do not allow believers to be tempted beyond what they are able, and I plead with you now to help me throughout this day to withstand the temptations that I face. I know in everyone there is a way of escape from 
those various temptations, and I pray that you would help me to take it each time. Help me to endure life's various temptations today that I might be pleasing to you and not sin against you. That's a way that you might pray that at the beginning. As it's written, you could pray that in the moment of temptation. That's a way to shepherd your heart when you're at a crossroad, you know, and you're, and you're, and you're seeking to, to fight those sins. There's additional passages to consider praying through where you can do the same thing and, and those questions there as well. I knew it was a big lesson. We've gone long. What questions do you have? Save them for Ann. Save them for Julie. <laughs> Not even one? Okay. All right, well, let's pray, and uh, then you guys can decide how you want to spend the last 15 minutes. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of prayer that we can come before you, that we don't have to look to... Uh, a horizontal means, uh, um, another person to be able to have access to you. We can look to the Lord Jesus Christ and because of his work, we can approach the throne of grace and we can do so not uh, with some sort of uh, cold distance, but we can come to you as, as daddy, as Abba Father. And you hear and you draw near to us and you desire an intimate relationship with us you want us to present our requests and you want us to, to pour out our hearts and share and you want to give us hope and comfort and tend to us. We thank you for that. We thank you that your ways always are better. And so, Lord, I pray that you would grow us in our dependency upon you, that you would help us to recognize our constant need for you, that you would increase our godliness and our maturity in Christ as we seek to cultivate all the more uh, a deeper faithfulness in living a life of prayer. We ask these things in your name and for your glory, we pray. Amen.